Welcome to the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. I'm Jenny Rawlings, a longtime yoga teacher and educator, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Travis Pollan, an exercise science professor and a longtime yogi himself. Together, we take a science-based look at many of the common questions, myths, and controversies that arise in the realms of yoga, movement, and fitness. Join us on this crash course where the worlds of yoga and movement science collide. Hello and welcome to episode 16. In this episode, we are going to be talking all about how to teach movement and yoga specifically and the different ways that we can go about it. So in general, there are three main approaches to teaching and cueing yoga. The first is visual or demonstrating. The second is verbal or speaking your cues. And the third is kinesthetic, which we'll talk more about as we get into things. So many teachers use a mix of all three of these techniques, but there is a trend, it seems, to consider where some some teachers are considering verbal cueing to be superior to the other types of teaching. In fact, some teachers will even go so far as to teach only using verbal cueing with either minimal or no demonstration or physical touching. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have teachers who use all three styles. And oftentimes the reason that they're using all three styles is because they're trying to cater to the supposed three different types of learners, visual, auditory, and kinesthetic learners. So the idea is that you don't necessarily know who's in the room in terms of what types of learners or what people's preferences for learning are in your class. So you want to use a mix of all three. So we are going to, um, over the course of this episode, question the idea that verbal cueing is superior to the other styles and specifically that teaching without demonstrating is whether that's a good idea or not. And then we are also going to question the idea that we need to use three styles of teaching or cueing in order to accommodate the three types of learners in the room. Perfect. I think that's so well laid out. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thanks for that great introduction to this topic that I'm really excited for us to dive into today. And I feel like it just shows, it's interesting to think about how when you're thinking about teaching, and of course, uh, this context here, we're talking about movement and kind of specifically yoga, but but this goes for just all all teaching in general, including classroom teaching and education in general. Yeah, good, good point. This is right? yoga meets movement science, but... Um, there, this is a a hot topic in the Mm -hmm. education sphere and, Mm -hmm. uh, it certainly applies to a fitness context to any, anybody who's Mm -hmm. teaching movement. Totally, totally. And so I just think it's interesting to think about how there are these different ways that we can teach in terms of like delivering information to people whom we're teaching. And we might think of those as like different teaching styles, I guess, or just, yeah, modes of information delivery. And then, as learners on the other end of that, we have different ways that we can absorb information, or I guess you could say different styles of absorbing information. So I think as usual, uh, with a lot of the stuff we talk about on our podcast, there are ways in which a lot of these processes are, are discussed that, that are kind of oversimplified. And maybe that just makes it easier to think about and easier to use in a practical day-to-day manner. But ultimately, sometimes we want to take a step back and look at whether those oversimplifications are really like serving the teachers and the students and what we're all trying to achieve. And, uh, you know, yeah, because we might be trying to be scientific and Mm -hmm. uh, using a particular approach and it may not be necessary or the rationale behind it might not be totally accurate. Totally. I think that's, yeah, I feel like, I feel like that's common out there. And we kind of see trends like that a lot where things can often be claimed to be science-based, but then it's, it's easy to throw that word around, you know, Mm -hmm. without, with, right. (laughs) Um, Science is really complex. And uh, I think sometimes it's easier to just cite that when it, it doesn't really hold up to, or really live up to 
that claim. So we'll see, maybe, maybe some of this teaching and learning um, these ideas about how we teach and how we learn, maybe they might not be so science-based as maybe. people tend to claim. And maybe we could start off by just taking a look at that. So, um, I mean, this is a big conversation, but I think starting off with kind of lay, the lay of the land a little bit around this idea of uh, learning styles mm -hmm. and that there are different ways that we um, learn and absorb information do you want to, Travis, start us off by maybe just like a little introduction to learning style theory? Yeah. Super foundational. Yeah. So, well, you, what was the guy's name who invented it or who uh, came up with this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I think the most popular model is Neil Fleming's, Neil Fleming. Do you know the um, year by any chance? Well, what, what I read was that in general, the idea of learning styles was popularized like in the 1970s. I okay. don't know if Neil Fleming's dates back to then. Um, and there are a bunch of different models and approaches, yeah. but I yeah. think his is the most, right? The most popular. Yeah. So let's 50 years ago, this dude, <laughs> Neil, came up with this idea that people have preferred learning styles. And, mm -hmm. and as we mentioned before, the the three Sometimes it's three, sometimes it's four, sometimes it's Ten. a different <laughs> list than I'm about to give. But basically, you might prefer learning through visual, like seeing things. You might prefer learning through verbal cues, so listening. And then you might prefer to learn through kinesthetics. Uh, and that in, in the context of yoga, the, mm -hmm. the maybe the most relevant application would be through physical touch from the teacher. So um, either an adjustment or an assist. Yeah. From a kinesthetic standpoint in a classroom context that could just be like using your body or acting something out, but, mm -hmm. um, yoga is we're always using the body. Uh, so, so right. when we say kinesthetic from a yoga lens, we're really talking about receiving physical touch or, you know, oh. assist or an adjustment. Or do you think we can throw into the kinesthetic uh, category, like oh, yeah. things like yoga props in used yeah. in a way to provide feedback? Yeah. Con constraining the environment or providing tactile feedback in some way uh, right. that's external to the body and that you can feel. So, so the idea, this guy, Neil had this idea where if day. you can diagnose or identify a person's preferred learning style, one of those three, then you could match your, the teaching to the preferred learning style, and that would lead to better learning outcomes. Mm -hmm. So if uh, Sally in the class says that she is a visual learner, then you'd want to make sure that you're demonstrating the poses for Sally. But if Bobby says that he's an auditory learner, that or he learns best from verbal cueing, then you would want to make sure that you're speaking the cues, um, mm -hmm. or, you know, narrating the sequence. And then if, um, Joan says she's a kinesthetic <laughs> learner, then she, uh, you want to make sure that you're providing some sort of kinesthetic feedback for her as well. So, and again, the idea is we're going to match the, mm -hmm. the, the teaching style to the individual to individualize the process. And that's going to lead to better learning outcomes, a better experience for the student than if you uh, didn't go through this process, basically. You know, if you gave, if you, if there was a mismatch between uh -huh. people's preferred styles and the style that you were teaching. Right, right. That totally makes sense. And I think uh, what you're describing as far as assessing like an individual student's quote learning style that seems to me like if you're really, if you as a yoga teacher or a movement teacher, we're really going to do that like per individual student, then maybe that would be more appropriate for something like a yoga private setting. One yeah. One. Yeah. This, in a, in a group, you, you can't really practically do that. Right. Well, I, I saw something where in schools they were adopting this, um, this practice. Maybe you saw this too. Maybe you sent this to me. They were having this, <laughs> the kids wear shirts oh wear shirts with the AVK. V, oh yeah so it, there was a v for visual or a, mm -hmm. well, i don't know a, a for auditory or k for kinesthetic to and label so, these students yeah, as, yeah yeah um so i guess you could do that in your class too in your right. yoga class but, but to your point uh it would be most suitable for privates because you could actually ask the people 
uh, what, what's your preferred learning style and then, mm-hmm. you know, and then cater your teaching to that, but in exactly. a group setting, since it's not really practical, we're not going to have our yoga students wear shirts and also a teacher in a public like yoga studio, their assemblage of students in any group class is always changing anyway. Yeah. So yeah. the point, the point is that there's this advice in the yoga world that, uh, because you never really know what type of learners you have in class. You should just always include all three, like all three right. types of teaching. Right. Like you should always uh, verbally cue and visually demo and either touch. And this does, I know a whole other topic of touch, but we could maybe think of yoga props as another form of um, kinesthetic teaching. So the mm-hmm. idea is just like, you got to include all three so that you cover all bases and yeah. hit all the potential learners. Yes. And so this theory has a lot of, well, it has a lot of surface appeal because mm-hmm. it sounds like it makes sense. Yeah, and the, that, yeah. that approach of using all three styles is not, let's start by saying that's not necessarily wrong. In fact, mm-hmm. it's probably right, mm-hmm. but it might not be for the reason that we think. So the, the, there is a lot of since 1970 whatever when neil came out with this neil fleming probably dr neil fleming right right probably uh dr fleming came out with this theory um i hope he doesn't listen to this well i guess he can he probably knows what the state of the research probably does know by now right right i would imagine the so there's been tons of research on this over the last 50 years and uh do you want to spill the beans on yeah, what the okay. research sort of concludes. Yeah, I'll spill the beans. It's uh, super well established by now in 2022. It's super well established that the idea of learning styles, that people have different learning styles, that they learn better through these different body senses, basically, um, that that's a myth. And it's, call, it's called a neuromyth, a neuromyth, which I think is a really cool term that actually includes many other super common myths that probably most of our listeners can identify with having heard before. Um, you know, like you only use 10% of your brain is like another neuromyth or that people are left brained or right brained is another one or the triune brain, which I've been talking about a little bit recently, you know, the lizard brain, mammalian brain um, and uh, rational brain in these three parts. Anyway, these are all just different ways that 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 the brain has been oversimplified and uh, kind of chunked up into these just like different different um, modules or something that have different psychological functions or or sensory mode processing, you know, like in with sensory modes, kind of bringing it back more to the visual auditory kinesthetic learners. Mm-hmm. And it just turns out that that the brain doesn't function that way. And really, I mean, really like to summarize it, it's like we, we typically use most of our brain most of the time. So it's not the case we're only using 10%. It's not the case that you're ever really only using like uh, the visual cortex to, you know, set, um, create a perception of from visual information. Like it's just so much more integrated than that in the brain. And when it comes down to like learning, say learning through a visual medium, um, like watching a physical demo or reading text or watching a slideshow, those are all examples of like visual learning. Um, that it's just this, these senses are never really truly separate when it comes to how the brain receives and integrates information and then outputs an experience for you. So like the visual input is never really truly only isolated and visual. Like you're always it, that's always um, combined with other inputs, especially once it's uh, processed in the brain. Mm-hmm. So just these ideas that we can kind of separate this all out and then that we can categorize and lab- categorize and yeah. label people as different types of learners and- because... So I was just going to ask you, I was just going to ask you, um, because they've done a lot of controlled experiments, right, Travis, where they, yeah. uh, yeah, where they'll take people who have been labeled as certain types of learners and then teach them in those specific learning styles. And what, what happens in these experiments? Nothing. <laughs> no. So <laughs> the, the learning outcomes are no better than if they hadn't mm-hmm. labeled them and individual individualized the instruction to the person's preference. So it just doesn't yeah. work. Yeah. So if you, if you think that you're a visual learner, you know, it, you might, you might really have a preference. Like people do have preferences and you can say, I prefer to learn through listening to a podcast. You know, you could say that, but that doesn't mean that you do actually learn better that way. And we know from research that, 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 that isn't the case. And we actually can learn through all these different channels. Yeah. And that, that I think probably for a lot of listeners who are hearing this for the first time, 
that might be really surprising and really mm -hmm. hard to wrap one's head around because you intuitively feel that, right? Like mm -hmm. you might really, really identify with one of those styles and not one of the others. Right. Um, but from a research standpoint, the, that just doesn't seem to be the case. And, th right. and it's not, it, nor is it the case that we just don't have the research yet. So that's another important thing to consider <laughs> is that I think right. that actually, so you said we like in 2022, we know this. I think we knew this in like 2006. Like, yeah, we a, did. We did. There yeah. was a, which is crazy because still to this day, mm -hmm. pedagogy, like teaching how to teach classes where they teach you how to teach are proliferating th those neuromyths. These myths. All, like all uh, those ones I mentioned, I think. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. but the 15 years ago, we already knew that the research was conclusive enough that mm -hmm. this didn't work. There's been so much research on this, yet we still see this neuromyth continuing to be uh, proselytized because for a few reasons, right? It's attractive. It makes intuitive sense. Um, it's a nice simplification, but it turns out an oversimplification and um, people are making money off of it. Oh, right. Because they're selling these methods, right? Like the learning style method or whatever. They sell them to schools and... Yeah. The, like there are, yeah, there are workshops that you can mm -hmm. take that teach you how to teach to people's different learning styles. So people are, even if the research shows that this is not, uh, um, this doesn't work, people still, still. will... They're, they're too invested in it for, to acknowledge that it's not working. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG. And we are the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. Totally. And it makes so much intuitive sense. All of that. Yeah. Thanks so much for saying that. It's so true. Like we know that often day-to-day -day practice uh, lags really far behind insights from research. So research really may have like debunked. 17 years. That's, yeah. Uh, oh, that's, that's the, the actual. number that's put out there. Yeah. Yeah. So if we've known that learning styles are a neuromyth, if we've known that since 2006 or even before. So what next is that? year we'll be, <laughs> we'll, we will be squared away so funny um that's perfect it's coming up uh yeah. but another thing i wanted to point out was i also did read in uh reading up on learning styles myth that there's some research to suggest that when you teach according to learning styles like that like you know when you try to identify a student's style and then cater your mode of teaching to that to that style it can actually be counterproductive um, mm. and research has suggested because um it can create like a self-limiting prophecy yeah. for that person they're like i'm a visual learner that's the only way i know how to learn so i'm not gonna even try when it's these other yeah you know that could limit them over the long term it can kind of hold them back yeah so i had a mentor during my phd training she taught the pedagogy class for for us doctoral oh, yeah. students and uh i asked her about this and she said yeah uh there's actually you could make the argument that okay people have these preferences and you should deliberately teach them Mm. to mm -hmm. their non-preferred style to help nice. them grow and develop and try to, you know, break out of that mold that, oh, I can only learn one way. A hundred percent. I also did read that uh, research has suggested that specifically like mixing up the way that you, you teaching, teaching in all three, like multimodal teaching, but that that can be more successful as far as actually transferring knowledge. And that sometimes people can learn better when it's more challenging for them to learn. Like when, Ooh. or when it, when it's a learning style that they believe like that, that's not their preference. It's interesting. Maybe, you know, they have to um, try harder or just adapt in a different way. And that might make them retain the information better than Very just good. always having it catered to the way that the teacher believes you learn best. So, mm -hmm. or at the, at the very least, so you mentioned multimodal. So mm -hmm. from a yoga example, that would be demonstrating and cueing simultaneously exactly as opposed to just one or the other or one then the other 
totally so people like, can right. just integrate the information in more ways at mm -hmm. the same time. like all at once and because that's how the brain processes information anyway like it's all it's never really separate in the brain anyway so why not present things in like a a mixed modal manner that seems mm -hmm. to be that seems to be what like the evidence would support um, so I guess, yeah, so thanks for bringing up yoga again to kind of bring all of this back to yoga, movement, fitness, things like that, because our, our like um, realm that we're operating in is is the teaching of movement, like we're movement teachers and we have movement students. So I guess what that would kind of bring us back to is, and we'll talk about this more later in this episode, but uh, so we personally think it, it is a really great idea to use all modalities when teaching all methods of delivering information when teaching yoga or movement, but not because of the learning style myth. So like it's, you know, we probably wouldn't recommend yeah. saying the reason you should do this is because you may have these different types of learners in your class and you want to accommodate all of them because that's um, a neuromyth. Right. But we can still use all three, right. but not for that reason. Not for that reason. Just because it's, it's better. People learn better from all three. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. when they're exactly yeah so i think that's that's kind of a good way to present the learning learning styles myth in general but also just just how to think about delivering your teaching through these various ways that you could like these various um mediums and how just in general a mix a mix can be good and it, it can be evidence-based but we know yeah. that in in the yoga world we do have this tendency and this is taught in my experience in quite a few yoga teacher training programs but there's this idea that uh, verbal uh, verbal cueing, so teaching, I guess, in the auditory manner, is superior, specifically in my experience, specifically to physical demoing. So there's this idea that like um, you're a better yoga teacher if you can teach your whole class without demonstrating any pose. <laughs> like it's really, so it really is perplexing to me that this is even a thing. I know. I because I, I just never heard of it in a fitness context. Right. So fitness being kind of separate from yoga, you mean? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. In the fitness world, that doesn't seem to be a thing, right? Like that's not emphasized. Like you should only no. talk people through things. It's like we're as personal trainers, we're always taught to demonstrate and talk people through things. It just right. Why? Why would you? A picture is worth a thousand words, right? And then a video or whatever, <laughs> like a visual. Why would you waste your time and effort trying to use a million words to describe something when you can show somebody two squats and then they get it? Totally. Like it can, <clears throat> it can be that simple, maybe. I don't know if simple is the best word, but just it, do it doesn't have to be. Like we don't have to go out of our way to make things. Why would we put more? Why, why would we subject ourselves to a less efficient and more cumbersome? way of doing things like how does right. that make us better or the experience better for the students well maybe we could i know we've kind let's of start, um, start over. yeah we've let our Before bias so irate at this exactly. idea um, <laughs> we've kind of revealed our bias maybe we could take a step back and try to look at this right. a little more objectively all right. i'll be we the have... person who i'll be the person who likes the who thinks this idea is a good idea and you be the person who doesn't and then okay cool no wait <laughs> I don't think I can do it. You can't role play that. Okay. Well, <laughs> All right, we... you, you be the person who likes the idea. I'll be the person who doesn't. And then we'll go. Okay, I love okay. it. I'll, I'll step in and out of this role a little bit because maybe I'll add some other commentary, not as this person. But let's say, okay, okay so I'm, the, I'm, the te I'm teaching a yoga teacher training and I'm teaching my trainees that verbal cueing is best. And whenever possible, you should teach via verbal and you should not demonstrate. Perfect. And that you're a better teacher if that's what you do. So that's what I think. And that's what I teach yep. in my teacher training. And, and um, am I, wait, am I in the teacher training? Yeah. Yeah, you're And I have these really uh, iconoclastic beliefs. Is that the correct word? We'll go with it. <laughs> I I disagree. And I'm going to be that. Oh, oh, iconic. I think it is iconoclast. That's a great word. Okay. I'm going to be the pesky student who's like, uh, totally agree okay. and you're gonna like annoy me and i'm gonna be like why are you questioning me in the middle of this but anyway <laughs> so okay. reason number one that visual that verbal cueing is superior to the other modes of teaching well reason number one is that uh it's kind of a cop-out for the teacher if you just demo because it's a lot easier to demo a pose and have people just kind of uh, quote, copy what you do. They just watch what you do and then they do it. And that's just really easy for you as a teacher. Like I just so can lazy. do down dog. Yeah. Yeah. 
uh, I think it's lazy if you just, you know, it's harder for you as the teacher, like you have to work more and potentially grow more if you only mm. verbally say it out loud. So I think it's kind of a cop out and it makes lazy teachers if we're physically demoing. So don't, um, don't demo Travis. Okay. Got it. Wait, uh, I guess I'll hold my uh, oh, uh, critiques till the end. Oh, really? Okay. So you're not going to argue with me point by point. Okay. Then I'll just lay out all the, all the yeah, reasons. Okay. Okay. Just a quick moment to interject and to thank you for listening to this episode of the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. As you can probably tell from this conversation, Travis and I value taking an evidence-based approach to the body and movement, which means incorporating insights from scientific research into our practice and teachings. We channel our understanding of movement science into our Strength for Yoga remote group training offering which is a monthly strength program we created to make strength training accessible and relevant for yogis. Our program empowers yogis in both their yoga practice and their whole life in general. Our strength for yoga program also comes with unlimited access to my full yoga class library. Use code podcast 30 for 30% off your first month in our program or your first month in any other membership on my website. You can learn more and sign up at jennyrollings.com and the link is in the show notes. And now back to our episode. Oh, really? Okay. So you're not going to argue with me point by point. Okay. Then I'll just lay out all the, all the yeah, reasons. Okay. Okay. So then another one is that, uh, if you demo, if you demo, you're not paying attention to your students. If you demo, you're not like as a teacher, you're not um, looking at them, you're not paying attention to what they're doing because you're doing this physical demo. And so a better teacher would be one who didn't demo and was only talking because then you could really uh, watch your students. So there's that. Mm -hmm. And physical demoing is sometimes said to, it pulls your students out of their practice. You know, like they should stay. Uh, oh, yeah. really inward focused and in this meditative focused on their mat in their body. And if you're demoing and you're asking them to like, look at you at the front of the room, then that's pulling them out of their practice. And when you demo, you're using your body as a teacher. And so, and that can be bad for the body to just like overuse like oh, that, yeah. you know, like doing all these wear and tear. Mm -hmm. wear and tear on the body. Like that's not good. It's better if you just walk around or, or just sit there or something, but going in and out of yoga poses is wear and tear on the body. It's dangerous. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think I have, oh yeah, I have one more, one more reason why you should not uh, demonstrate because, it, and that's that if you demonstrate poses, you'll give your students the idea that, that um, yoga is all about aesthetics or like what poses look like. That's like portraying that. So uh, for all of those reasons and more, it's just a superior method of teaching to um, only speak, to only verbally cue. And I know we also have the kinesthetic side of it. We're not really, we're kind of, this is kind of a little bit, just comparing just the, the demoing versus, versus the other, that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what do you think yoga teacher training student, Travis? I think that is bollocks. Really? I do. I do. And I, I'm sorry. Why are you questioning teacher, me? Jenny, um, it just doesn't make sense to me because of a lot of reasons. So why in the world? I, I just gave you so many good reasons. So many. Yeah. So, well, first of all, like I said, I think that it's silly to try to create more work for yourself when you have this efficient means of teaching people through demonstration that you just don't have to create unnecessary work for yourself when it's easier to demonstrate than trying to explain something using your words and it takes longer and all that are you saying like physical demonstrating is like maybe more can be more efficient than yeah than verbally cueing so that actually could be a plus is that what you're saying uh, that's exactly what i'm saying because i want to flip that script and take that same point and say that visual cueing makes you a lazy teacher but you're saying it's just more efficient and that's good that's what i'm saying <sighs> i'll have to mull that one over okay point number two um what was your second point uh, that if we're demoing, we're not paying attention to our students. I think that was yeah. So that's more of like a. I don't think that's a issue with demoing. I think that's an issue with teaching. Is that yeah, you have to pay attention to your students while you're demoing, and that's that's a skill, mm -hmm. right? It's not, right, that's and a it's skill. certainly not 
trivial to be able to do that at the same time. But you could, I feel like you could just as easily not be paying attention if you were like thinking really hard about how to say the thing, um, like right. devoting all of your cognitive energy to how am I going <laughs> to explain this with my words without demoing that I can't pay attention to oh what's going gosh. on in the room in front of me. So wow. it just, it doesn't seem to be, I mean, I, I get wow. logistically, well, if you're in down dog yeah, then, and you're like having to turn your head, but just, yeah, you got to position yourself in such a way that you can see people, but also like, I don't know how much I, and I can't, I can't speak to this, but how much are you, as you're demonstrating, how much are you, or as you're queuing, how much are you, how much is the, what's happening in the room affecting what you're saying? I mean, I guess it is. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I think this gets a little complex, uh, you know, because there are different types of situations and, and also, um, are we talking about a yoga teacher demoing like an occasional pose in a class, or are we talking about a yoga teacher staying on their mat the whole time and doing the entire right. class? Yeah. And I don't think that we're advocating for that as all at all. I think we're right. saying use the thing. Well, and th actually this is a really important overall <laughs> So use the teaching style that is the best in that moment for for what you're teaching. Yes. So and that 100%. applies to in a, in an education classroom. You know, if I'm teaching poetry, we're gonna read the poem. Mm -hmm. If I'm teaching sculpture, we're gonna use our hands to. I don't know. I don't. I don't know. No, totally. But so, <laughs> so in the moment uh, uh, where you're teaching the the sequence use whichever one makes the most sense. So if in that moment you do need to have your eyes on the people, mm -hmm. then yeah, you can't be demoing something where you're putting yourself in a position where you can't have your eyes on the people. But mm -hmm. that's not all the time. So no. it's a trade-off, right? Some, it, yeah, it might be a little bit harder to see what's going on in the room if you're demoing. So, okay, don't demo for 75 minutes straight and not look at the class. Yeah, but at the same time, exactly. don't put yourself out by forcing yourself not to demo anything at all when it would be more convenient to demo it. 100. I think it's really stated that really well. Like there's nuance, right? And none of these are black or white rules. Uh, but maybe just looking at looking at it from, um, yeah, a more, uh, a more nuanced place and kind of seeing where there can be exceptions to the rule. Yeah. So then the next one was, oh, it takes students out of their practice if they are watching you demonstrate. Yeah. Doesn't it take students out of their practice if they're listening to you? How is that any different? It's just a different sense, but is that. one stronger? Like listening is auditory and watching is visual. Does it yeah. take students out of their practice if you have them push into a block and then say, "What does it feel like as you push into that block?" Like this is, I'm saying, a kinesthetic example now, or it's actually mm -hmm. like a tactile example. But now you're asking them to feel like their relation to this external object. Isn't that taking them out of their? Pra I mean, couldn't all these? sensory yeah. um, inputs coming in at the same time. Yeah. So uh, to me, it's like, okay, I get it. If the student has to crane their neck and look up to see what you're doing right, while they're doing right. something, I could see that like literally taking somebody out of their practice. But I think that it's, it's kind of like for a beginner, it's kind of necessary and they're, they're going to not be able to yeah. be in their practice as much because they do have to learn and they do have, they have to, to look. Learn. And they, so somebody who's more experienced can may, maybe, so if you're the teacher and you're demoing and queuing at the same time, the student can decide for themselves whether to take themselves out of their practice, quote unquote, to look and see what's going on. And somebody who's more experienced can opt just to listen. Right. But if you don't, if you're not demoing, then the person who doesn't know what's going on doesn't even have anything to look at for help. And then would they be in their practice or would they be... Yeah, yeah. That takes so, them out of their practice. Yeah, if they don't know what they're doing, and then they have no mm -hmm. quick reference to to see. Totally, then they're out of their practice anyway. Uh, I've certainly experienced that as a student. I'm like, what am I supposed to be doing? And then I look up, and the teacher's not maybe not doing anything, not not doing right. anything, but not yeah, right. demoing. And then, I, then I look at the, somebody else in the room to see what they're doing. Well, who knows if they're doing it right? That's so true. And plus, you're still you're still looking at someone else. So is that? taking you out of your practice by this rationale. Yeah. I don't know. I just think that claim is, is oversimplified and, and makes yeah. assumptions, you know? Yeah. So I, th I think maybe some students would feel that way, but it's also their mm -hmm. choice. Unless you're, mm -hmm. as the teacher saying, look at me, 
but then if you are, that would probably be a moment of stillness for the student. You know, mm -hmm. I'm going to demonstrate, then you're going to do, as opposed to look at me while you're doing this thing. I, I, don't, I just right. don't hear, I don't experience teachers doing that. I think a skilled, a skilled teacher, an experienced teacher, they kind of know when to pepper in and how to coordinate their demos so that they are, you know, seamlessly integrated into the class without being like distracting and they're being more helpful, I guess, to the, yeah. to the overall class. Yeah. Okay. Um, so the next point, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I'm pretending to be the teacher, the teacher trainer. Again, I'm just saying that you're starting to convince me that maybe some of my points, you know, could be questioned. No, and and on the surface, you wouldn't be swayed. <laughs> well, you let's see. To, Don't... You have to hold on to your ground and be the authority. Oh, I have to be obstinate. Okay. Yeah, you can't let the teacher, <laughs> the, the the teacher training student get right. up on you. Well, you've tried to knock my my opinion down with a few different reasons, but you haven't yet. I'm going to stick to my original opinion. I still yeah. have one or two more reasons I said, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, it's giving this, it's uh, overemphasizing the aesthetics oh, of the pose. yeah. When you demonstrate. Yeah. That is only true if you let it be true. Mm -hmm. So that's purely based on the narrative that you're ascribing to your demonstration so if you say make sure it looks like this then yeah you're creating some some picture for the student of what it's supposed to look like but all you have to say is just so you know it doesn't yours isn't necessarily going to look like mine or it can look many different ways so it's not automatically that if i demonstrate mm -hmm. i'm putting the, the aesthetic value of the pose on a pedestal mm -hmm. it's it, it it could do that if you allow it, but it's, or or if you That's make so it that true. way, but I don't think it automatically makes it that way. And I think it's easy enough to make it not that way. 100%. Isn't it all about kind of like the narrative that you're kind of couching everything in when you're in, in how you're presenting it and just your approach to your style of yoga in general and the way you're presenting that to your students. You can certainly make it be all about aesthetics and like photos for Instagram, or you could make it be about something else, but we're still on the mat doing movements. And when you're teaching and communicating about movement, you know, showing people visually can be a part of that without it having to necessarily be like, it's all about what it looks like. Right. Yeah. So you just, right. You would say yours isn't necessarily going to look like mine and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you can do the pose a few different ways and then. Right. You as the teacher, this, you mean? Yeah. Th then the student can even see, oh, mine might look more like this or more like that. A hundred percent. Yeah. So it's kind of, yeah, it's like in how you present it and you, you can be in charge of how, how that comes across, like what type of messaging, but it doesn't mean that just demonstrating in and of itself isn't inherently making it about aesthetics. Right. Yeah. And I, I think it's just, especially for a beginner, somebody who's never been in the room and you're trying to walk somebody through verbally a, a mm -hmm. down dog, let's say like, it's mm -hmm. going to be so much easier for that person to see it and hear it than just to hear it. Right. Uh, yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm, um, I've stepped out of my role as the teacher. Oh, yeah, yeah. Insane, I agree That's... with you, but I gotta, I have to step back in. We have one more reason yes. that I brought up about why verbal cueing yes. is better. And that's because we just need to address this and then we can move on. Um, it's because if you physically demonstrate when teaching, you'll wear, you'll wear and tear on your body. It's like too much movement for the teacher. So you'll protect your body by, by not doing yoga poses when you, when you teach. That's my last point and I'm sticking to it. Okay. So if you're teaching 14 classes a day, yeah, sure. That, that's going to be really tough on your body, right? If, and I, like, I know there are people, maybe 14 is a stretch, but I know there are people <laughs> right, who teach really a ton of classes. For sure. And like 20 that, a week or something like that. Yeah. And that would be, I could imagine that being really hard. For sure. But, to do all of that yoga. Yeah. yeah. But you can't, automatically say that that's going to be too much for the person because if they've this is like the, a conversation that we always have if they've built up to that over time <laughs> and they are able to tolerate that then that's fine for them not yeah. everybody would be able to step into teaching 20 classes a week and being okay so it could mm -hmm. be too much for a given individual but you can't make a blanket statement that by physically demoing poses that's going to be too hard on our bodies mm -hmm. as teachers. So on everyone's we should bodies. Yeah. Because everybody's body is different. 
And, and then the other side of that argument was like, well, if you just occasionally demo and you're not like properly warmed up for that. Mm-hmm. And I like, I, I get that. I think that's, that's fair to say if you, you know, didn't, if you were just walking around or maybe you were just standing still and then you like, uh, fall back into a back bend yeah. <laughs> um, right. after being relatively not warmed up. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's not going to work out so well for everybody. I mean, it might work out fine for right. some, some people. Some teachers may be well some adapted, pe- yeah. but a lot some of Some people can just do that. Other For other people, that's not going to work so well. So it's... It's uh, kind of relative, right? Like within reason. Yeah, it, it has to be within reason. It's taking it too far to say, this is going to be wear and tear. It could just be like, that's the two hours of movement that you mm-hmm. get a day. Mm-hmm. And that's great. Uh, but it, I don't know if you're... Tr- if you have your own two-hour movement practice outside of your teaching, uh, and then now you're talking about going doing four hours, seven days a week, that, that could be mm-hmm. a, lot, a lot for people. Right. So maybe what could be really helpful is for people to build up the experience to just be able to teach in a multitude of different ways, and then they can choose to kind of um, fall into the modality that they want to teach in in that one month. They're feeling tired on a particular day. Maybe they yeah. just, they walk around more and they don't, they don't do so many poses. Yeah. So I, I think it's fair to take that into consideration of if you're teaching a ton of classes every week or you're teaching mm-hmm. a ton of classes that day. Yeah. You might want to save some energy for later or give yourself a little bit of a break by opting for a little, like going a little bit more towards verbal than visual, but it's, right. it's way too extreme to say, oh, well, we have to save our bodies. So we're going to make it harder for ourselves. Uh, and we're going to never demonstrate. I totally agree with you. Would, would you say that maybe making the blanket statement that when yoga teachers demo, um, it's potentially creating wear and tear and, is, and can be bad for their bodies. Would you say that that could be fear mongering? I think so. It, because it's, it's all about how you, you conceptualize it. One person could say, well, that's a lot of wear and tear. And the other person could say, that's great that they're getting a lot of movement. Exactly. They're building their body up. They're like increasing their capacity. Yeah. 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 And again, it's super contextual. I think in general, whenever we just blanket statements in general, like this applies to everyone in all cases are just not helpful. So yeah, I think we've, we've explained how this, that's a nuanced point as well. So I'm going to step back into being the yoga teacher trainer who was advocating for verbal cueing being better. And I'm going to say, Travis, can you not be, can you leave my teacher training? You're a problem student. And you're just going to make I'm this fired. for me. <laughs> you, Do I, I get my money answer. back or done we'll now. talk about that later. Okay. But, but even though I'm resi- it's resistant and hard for me for you to bring up these points in the middle of this training, you still said them and I still heard them. And it may be something that I'll internalize and think about with a little more time. And, you know, maybe it's, maybe I'll hear these ideas from other people and over time, you know, belief change is such a hard thing. And generally just one person saying one thing, like that's not how it happens, but maybe an accumulation of ideas and um, inputs over time. So maybe you as this iconoclast maybe made me uncomfortable in the moment and I'm kind of holding up my, you know, I'm crossing my arms across my chest and just like, I don't want to hear about this. But maybe with some time as things settle in and I hear more and learn more, maybe I'll start to shift and it maybe all started with you being the iconoclast in my program. I won't hold my breath. <laughs> that's, that's me being positive on this. But can we um, flip the script a little bit now? Now that now I'm stuck, I'm not the teacher trainer anymore. So okay. I'm back to beat me. So we just kind of went over a lot of the reasons often given for why verbal cueing is superior and better yoga teachers only verbally cue and they minimize their demoing, their physical demoing. So we talked about why that's often justified. Now can we kind of flip the script and look at why uh, teaching only using verbal cues, why that actually could be limiting? Like, what are some reasons for why it might be less than optimal to minimize physical demoing and only verbally teach? Let's do that. (laughs) Okay. And maybe we don't, I don't think there's a yoga, we don't have to role play that yoga teacher training now. Okay. We'll both, we'll both be on the same page. Yeah. Let's be on the same page. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. We, we kind of had a list of reasons to talk about for how actually taking that on, you know, like can, could be a little limiting. And the first reason on the list that I actually personally find to be a super fascinating reason is something called mirror neurons. 
mirror neurons. Travis, have you heard about about mirror neurons before? I don't know. <laughs> I yeah. maybe. I wondered if, like, in your motor learning, um, you know, stuff that you've learned and taught, but maybe not. Maybe not. Uh, I'll, I'll, and I, I am no expert, but I have read up on them a bit. And I don't. We shouldn't take too much time to talk about it here uh, in this conversation. But I think it's pertinent and relevant to this. So basically. Mirror neurons are a relatively recent discovery. They were discovered like um, like 20 years ago or so. And they're these neurons that we have in our brain that activate both when you perform a movement and when you watch someone else perform that oh. same movement. Are you remembering I, you have yeah. these before? <laughs> yeah, because of graded motor yes, imagery. Yes, because of motor okay. imagery. Yes, I was going to talk All about right. that too. Yeah. Okay, you know what I'm talking about. So yeah, these specialized neurons, and um, they were discovered in monkeys, but now they've also been discovered in humans. And they they activate both when uh, when you do a specific movement, like I don't know, let's say um, shoot a basketball into a basket. I don't know. You have certain neurons that will activate to coordinate that motor program. But if you were to stand there and watch someone else shooting a basketball into the basket, those same neurons, those mirror neurons in your brain, they like mirror what the person is doing and they will activate. Isn't it also, isn't yeah. it also true that if you imagine or think about or visualize doing the movement yeah. yourself, which isn't as relevant to this conversation, but that mm -hmm. activates the same circuitry? Yes, yes, so that's can, my you understanding. You just by thinking. Yes, ex exactly. And that's why I think, you know, I think we've talked about or you've mentioned before, Travis, that like in athletic events, don't coaches often coach athletes to like visualize yourself doing well, a movement first they should. and then do it. <laughs> it <laughs> they don't always, but they should. Yeah, there, there's probably some taboo. Uh, or it's, you know, that's a this visualization or rehearsal, mental rehearsal, mental imagery. Yeah. It's a it's a sports psych intervention or, you know, it's something that you can do to enhance your performance. And we have right. research that shows that. But I, I think that there's a little bit of taboo. I think some people are not oh. so inclined to, to do that. But I think that so to your point, coaches should employ these techniques, but whether mm -hmm. they do or not, I don't know. Interesting. But research has shown that they can be effective. So both imagining the movement, visualizing it, uh, fires these same mirror neurons that watching someone else do the same movement will also fire that will also fire when you yourself do the actual movement it's like really cool stuff i feel like is is the idea of doing something on one side and then doing it on the other does that have anything so really... i'd like i'd like to know that and that's actually one of my outstanding questions but to me it seems like yes like you mean the, the crossover effect think it well especially with mirror yeah with mirror therapy which mm -hmm. is a bit of a, uh, a a particular thing but if if you have a, a deficit like a, a an injury in your hand let's say you can put a mirror kind of um bisecting yourself so mm -hmm. you could watch yourself doing the thing with your unaffected hand and it looks to you as you're looking in the mirror that the affected side is doing it and that can actually have favorable benefits from a functional or pain standpoint. Right. Like for rehab or. Yeah. Yeah. That's super cool. Uh, to me, that seems along the same lines, but I don't know if that's technically mirror neurons or not. Also, I would like to just uh, volunteer that because they are such a recent, a relatively recent discovery. I also have read that it's a little controversial about mirror neurons. Uh, that some scientists are, you know, it's like when something is new, people get really excited about it. And then they kind of want to jump to conclusions like around the learning styles. <laughs> yeah, like the learning styles. Exactly. So I think there's some hesitance among some scientists to be like, mirror neurons do all these things. Okay. Um, but they but other people um, like, for example, OK, so, for example, I know there's there's research and I was uh, reading up on some of it for this episode, research on something called um, observational motor learning. So it's been shown in research that like if you want to teach someone, say, a, a sport task or a sport skill, they will perform better and they learn it better if they both observe the movement being done and they practice it as compared to just having them practice it. So like mm -hmm. their performance is enhanced if they also watch someone doing it and they practice it. And so what I've been seeing is, is it seems like the researchers are postulating that now that we know about mirror neurons, mirror neurons seem to explain that phenomenon that's already been known about for a while. 
like they okay. may explain why so i think it's kind of like that it's like they may be why it looks like maybe those are why these things happen but but maybe it's not like totally certain yet okay. but regardless it's cool and they've also been proposed to be play a role in things like empathy like how we can empathize with someone else and also play a role in our ability to detect other people's intentions when they're doing something wow like when they're doing a certain movement like our mirror neurons help us inform us and that can come into like sport specific skills skills like on, on a team sport you know your ability to mm -hmm. perceive what your opponents are doing or what they're planning on doing can yep. um it seems like mirror neurons may play a role in that so it's super cool and if we bring that back to our yoga and movement teaching conversation to me it just seems like you're potentially leaving a learning pathway off the table completely if you are yeah. not including um demos i mean like mirror norms are so cool and it seems like a way students instantly would just learn they'd watch you do the movement and they would internalize that in their brain and that should help them then do the movement better do you think i think so yeah. So one reason, that's one reason why actually physically demonstrating could be really cool. In addition to all the other reasons, like it's an efficient means of teaching and, and everything else. Yeah. Well, and it goes back to our multimodal yes. of teaching. Exactly. And this just may be one reason that helps support that or helps explain mm -hmm. why multimodal mm -hmm. teaching can be so helpful. Uh, so, okay, a couple other reasons, right? Why we might question that verbal cueing is the best. A couple other reasons. One, one thing I would, I, I would ask this question. Do you think, in your experience, Travis, like if you're in a mm -hmm. yoga class, do you think that if the teacher does some of the yoga practice with the class, you know, do you think that helps create more of a, a communal community vibe? Like that teachers totally. and students are kind of all in this together versus the teacher either just sitting there or only walking around and only narrating it, which that could that maybe in your is as a student experience in it, maybe it sets up more of that power dynamic between that's the teacher and the student. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I, um, you know, I've, I've had classes where the teacher sets up a mat in the front and mm -hmm. like that's her home base. I've also had classes where the teacher walks around and mm -hmm. will sometimes demo on the side mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or or the front which which makes sense right like if everybody's side totally. facing then <laughs> yeah the you go over, going to, the over to the side and doing the thing yeah i i think that's that's nice i think that if the teacher like had their hands tied behind their back and said i'm not or, or maybe they wouldn't say it but like i'm not demonstrating anything for you at all like right then, i'm yeah, gonna that, do it all that, with my words yeah then you weird. might feel like that's a little less i don't know i mean and, and i'm just making the assumption that like more of a communal vibe might be preferred you know but it does seem like there's a lot of dialogue in the yoga community these days about teachers not really elevating themselves up on a pedestal or creating like a potentially uh, non-optimal power dynamic between teacher and student. So I just wonder if, you know, the teacher be like, I'm in this with you. I'm doing this, you know? Yeah. Oh, uh, well, especially like you're telling me that I need to hold chair pose for 30 seconds. That's such a good example. And if you're doing it with me, although then sometimes I'm like, damn it. Why is it so hard for me? And why is it so easy for the teacher? They're just talking as they're doing it. Yeah. That's a, a that's a, a bit discouraging, layer. but I think that's a me thing. Yeah. I know what I, I think I see what you're saying, but in general, it's like, they're in it with you, you know? Yeah. And, um, that's like kind of, oh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do too. I do too. And again, as I think we've already spoken to, of course, it's all like a spectrum. And, um, there's one, one thing, uh, is like jumping into a yoga pose, a hard pose while people are doing it to kind of, you know, I'm in here with you, but then there's the example of a teacher's being on their mat, the entire practice and, um, you know, doing the whole class with everybody. And that's yeah, kind of different. That, I think I, that's probably like a very beginner mm -hmm. teacher, right? Like you could imagine so. that the teacher feels the need. They're new mm -hmm. and they feel the need to demo the whole thing. Uh, and I, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if that would bother me or not. I, I'm, I guess it would make me, f I guess having the teacher walk around the room makes me feel like they're a bit more... Um, there's an, there's the opportunity for them to notice things going on in the room versus if they're just on yeah. their mat the whole time. The whole time, yeah. So that's that's like what I perceive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's really helpful to hear. 
And I agree. And I think actually, if we get too much into that, that's kind of a different topic in my mind, um, yeah, you know, yeah, teaching yeah. methodology in, in general. So I just, to me, I think that's a little separate and different from this conversation about like um, learning styles and teaching styles. But I, I guess just to throw out that there is a, a, continu a, a continuum and, um, you know, there's being on your mountain, never leaving it and physically demonstrating everything. And then there's this yeah. other side, which is I'm not going to physically demonstrate anything. I don't even have a mat out. And a lot of teacher training yeah. programs say don't even put a mat out so that you can't like you're not tempted to demo you know so um anyway it's kind of a different uh conversation yeah but it, it's clearly related and we're mm -hmm. basically advocating as always that neither extreme exactly sense. yeah maybe neither extreme is like optimal or what in, yeah. in like most cases yeah you want to kind of do them all um a couple other points for why only teaching verbally might might be you know less than optimal are uh what if you have people in your class who are hard of hearing what if you have people in your class for whom english i'm assuming that we're teaching in english and maybe we're not but um but just what I, what if you have people in your class for whom the language you're teaching your class in is not their first language mm -hmm. and so just just hearing the words just it might create a barrier or a challenge for them. So mm -hmm. in that sense, perhaps including multimodal means of teaching might be more inclusive or accessible if you're thinking about it that way. Do you think so? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. So like demoing, demoing could visually demoing could be helpful in those cases so that people who maybe can't understand you very well and your words very well would still understand um, what you're asking them to do. Mm -hmm. So so yeah, I think that that seems like a pretty thorough look at, you know, the reasons generally offered for why verbal cueing is superior and makes you a better teacher. And then maybe some of these other reasons on the other side, where if you only verbally teach, why that may be a little limiting and maybe not so optimal, um, that there could be advantages to incorporating more. Uh, do you have any other thoughts on kind of on that, Travis? Not from the yoga standpoint, but could we speak to the fitness yes, context, you know, I would love to. as a, so I mentioned that when I, when I learned to be a personal trainer, my mentor, it was, you are, you're always going to demonstrate, right? Especially when you're teaching someone something new, uh, you're going to demonstrate, you'll show the right way to do it. Then you'll show the wrong way to do it. And then you'll show the right way to do it again. That's like the mm -hmm. quintessential demonstration. And all the while you're talking through it at the same time. And so from that standpoint, like that, that is the, the gold standard of how you should teach people, especially new movements or, or if they, they need a refresher, let's say it would be lazy of me <laughs> to not demonstrate, which is the exact opposite that of what you described where it's lazy. World. Yeah. To demonstrate. Cause it's too easy. So. So for me, like if I'm working with a client who I've been working with for a long time and they know what a rear foot elevated split squat mm -hmm. is, then mm -hmm. I'll just say, grab your dumbbell. We're going to do rear foot elevated split squats because I don't need to show them every time. Uh, right. But I also maybe I don't feel like doing rear foot elevated split <laughs> squats. So I'm just going to walk them through it. And some, sometimes like when I'm teaching online there, it, it's hard to like show someone something right. in the space right. that I have with the camera and all of that. And so, or I'm just, I don't feel like standing up and I, I am being lazy and it'll, I'll, it'll take me a minute to explain like how to do a bird dog when I could have just gotten on the floor right. and in five seconds shown <laughs> them what I meant. Right. Right. Uh, so it, it's funny that the, that it's the opposite in our con in my context versus a yoga context that really is funny yeah that like not demoing is kind of like the lazy way to go i was going to say when i was thinking about uh you as a personal trainer or anyone as a personal trainer um training people i kind of had this assumption that it might not be best to demo everything just because in a in a personal training context people are actually strength training and they're using more load versus like in the yoga world which it's low load and not necessarily like strength right. training more so, so the, i just the want yeah. that you could be putting mm -hmm. excessive wear and tear yeah might possibly be plausible when you're talking about doing something with heavy weights versus right. well body weight exercise like that's probably not going to put a lot of wear and tear on you so what I, I would say to that is that 
you when when we're talking about demonstrating you know the the good reps the bad reps and the good reps you only necessarily need to do like five reps mm-hmm. uh and you can do it with a very lightweight it doesn't totally. have to be oh let me show you exactly how this is going to look for the working weight that you're going to do where you're exerting all out it could mm-hmm. be okay i'm going to grab something you're going to use something heavy but i'm going to grab something light because mm-hmm. it's not my training session i'm just demonstrating for you and you could get you could imagine what it looks like with a much heavier weight or maybe right. in some contexts like i wouldn't put 500 pounds on my back yeah. so i would never put 500 pounds on my back even if i could put 500 pounds on my back I wouldn't do that for the uh, demonstration purposes. Right, 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 right. You wouldn't demonstrate with like your full max that you could do, but you would demonstrate enough to get the point across. Like, this is what I want you to do. Yeah, yeah. So so that was the the funny thing that my mentor would say. He would say, you only need to be able to do two good reps. That's right. (laughs) So so you you could, yeah, you could be like lousy at a particular exercise, but as long as you can fake a couple of good reps, before like your form goes to hell, then mm-hmm. th- that's enough. Right, right, right. Well, thank you so much for sharing and explaining that. I think it's really interesting to just hear how, you know, how these different ways of teaching movement are different in these different fields. I wonder why, like, I just, I wonder why there's this difference, you know, between movement modalities. Um, yeah. But I think it's definitely clear that amongst so many different realms where things are taught, whether it's movement and it's what you do and what I do, or whether it's classroom teaching in a more like traditional education context, uh, and also just just in general, these ideas about the way learning and teaching works and about the way the brain works and neuromyths and how easily they and widespread they populate and then how hard it can be to dislodge and change those beliefs once they're kind of set in. It's, it's kind of a lot to think about. We can cl- hone in and look closely, like in our realm of like yoga movement, fitness. But if you take a step back, it's kind of these greater tendencies. Yeah. And I think pe- like people are well-intentioned, right? Mm-hmm. So you think mm-hmm. that you're doing something good by catering to uh, people's learning styles only to find out that from this podcast <laughs> that that's a bunch of baloney. But it's, again, people, people are, it's never misintentioned that's not a word oh right ill intentions. you don't have ill yeah you don't have ill intentions to try to match people's learning styles everybody's trying trying to to do yeah do the best by their students uh yeah and i i think the interesting thing and the i don't really know the answer to this but okay so people are already you maybe using all three learning styles because they think that they're uh, catering to the learners in the room is there any and if they don't say anything at all about why they're mm-hmm. doing that, then uh, it could be for any reason. If they're specifically saying, I'm doing this to cater to the learners in the room, is there really some negative to people believing that? Maybe because what we talked about, then people get these self-limiting mm-hmm. beliefs that that's a thing and mm-hmm. and then they, they feel like they don't learn as well and maybe their perception becomes the reality. So maybe I did talk myself into we shouldn't be... Uh, <laughs> We shouldn't be perpetuating these myths because they could potentially have negative effects. But if you don't give the reason at all, then does it really matter whether you are doing it because of the right reasons or the wrong reasons? I think it's a really good question. And in in the end, like pragmatically, I guess, as far as the way you're teaching lands with students, if you're if you're not saying I'm teaching this way because of this, but you're just teaching, I don't see how there would be a difference. Right. It's more it's more like in the realm of yoga teacher training programs and when teaching methodology is taught and the rationale behind it. I think that's kind of where it comes into play more, maybe. Yeah. And you know? just not perpetuating myths, even it, if. Yeah. But what what the ramifications are of people believing those myths? It's is it really that deleterious? I I know. Totally. To like. Say. Like how big of a, it's, yeah. I mean, language, I feel like, I think we know in movement and yoga teaching language and narratives are kind of maybe the most powerful way that yoga teachers have potential to either negatively or positively influence people. So like, it's, it's like more like the explanations they give for why they do, but if it's something like this and they're not really giving an explanation for why they're um, demoing and verbally cueing and offering some kinesthetic stuff, then maybe it's not a big deal. But as far as their mentality goes for why they're teaching, so they know in an intentional way, I think it's better that they don't 
operate on myths. You know, I just think that's, I think under, if you want to be science-based, then understanding science. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it goes back to like your professionalism. Yes. Okay. You're you're operating, you might be doing the right thing for the wrong reason. Mm -hmm. Yes. Or if if you're like, uh, if you're like, I, I don't believe the research. I, I believe so strongly and I've seen this work so well in my practice in terms of catering to people's learning styles. It's like, well, you're, you're operating on a, an unscientific right. premise. That's not a very professional way of going about things. I think that's a great professionalism really matters. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and in the end, you know, I think we've said this before on the co- podcast, but a lot of times with this myth busting, it's like what you actually do in the end result doesn't like uh, people looking at ex- externally doesn't really need to change. It's more yeah, about yeah, the rationale yeah. and the, the reasoning right. and the explanation that goes behind. I feel like this is another example of that. But as a community, you and me and our listeners in general, I think we're all interested in, you know, just becoming as as science-based as we can when it comes to these topics and what and why and how we're teaching. So I feel like there's an inherent value in that. Agreed. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Well, I hope this conversation was informative and interesting. I'm curious, you know, like of our listeners, how many of them came to this um, thinking and believing in the learning styles myth, since it is so widespread. Wikipedia reported like 85% or something of educators today. Into, it was like in 2020, believe the myth of the learning style. So it's super wow. pervasive. Yeah. So I just, um, I hope that, that this conversation was helpful in maybe thinking, you know, taking a step back and thinking critically about some things that we've maybe made assumptions about that we didn't realize. It was helpful for me. <laughs> me too. Me too. Um, thank you so much for talking with me about this, Travis. Thanks, Jenny. And that wraps up our look at teaching styles and learning styles. Remember to use code PODCAST30 for 30% off your first month in any of the memberships on my website, including Travis's and my Strength for Yoga remote group training program. You can learn more and sign up at JennyRollings.com and the link is in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Yoga Meets Movement Science today. And if you found this discussion to be of value, we'd so appreciate your support if you had time to subscribe to this podcast and to leave us a rating or a review. We look forward to seeing you in our next episode soon.